Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. What's going on, y'all? It's Tamarcus Raglan. I'm here uh, for another episode, joined by my wonderful co-host, Adam Hawkins. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm glad to be here with you. Oh, likewise. <laughs> and uh, today, we are excited to start off uh, this new season, looking at ways in which our culture has changed uh, after the pandemic. As you know, uh, 2020 was kind of a, a marker in history in a lot of ways. There will be a lot of books in the future produced um, and, and, and essays written about uh, this time and the effects of it. And so we want to uh, start by, you know, as we've moved, what, three years uh, kind of past, uh, what are some things and ways in which that has reshaped our culture and the world we live in? And how can we as believers respond and live in it in a way that recaptures uh, human flourishing and human dignity and obviously promotes God's glory? And so uh, excited to kick off this uh, new series with you guys. And today we are honored to have with us a man whose life has been occupied by that question for a few years, right, about what does human flourishing look like and how do we bring that about in various ways. Uh, he's got degrees on degrees from Notre Dame all the way to Japan, and he has also directed and produced uh, several films, one of which uh, Poverty, Inc. Uh, is, is pretty notable. And he is also a lead researcher at the Acton Institute. He's a writer, speaker, and has produced a, a number of resources in the realms of theology, moral philosophy, economics, poverty, entrepreneurship, and culture. He's a modern-day Renaissance man, <laughs> and we're glad to have him on the show today, uh, Mr. Michael Miller. Michael, how you doing? Very good. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so glad that you're able to I'm be delighted here. to be here with you. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, t tell us a little bit. I mean, you've, you've got so many different things going on. Is there anything you got kind of cooking right now that uh we could be looking out for yeah so we um we're actually so at the acting institute we're starting a new a new project um and it's right now called center for social flourishing mm. and we're looking at really some of these deep questions of what does it mean to have human flourishing how do we flourish as individuals how would we flourish as family in families in our communities and what what is uh, how do we think about justice and opportunity uh, how do we address issues of poverty? Uh, you mentioned I, I did a film called Poverty Inc. And we also did a big project that I directed called Poverty Cure, which is a DVD series, uh, but also is a kind of a, uh, a network and a project to look at entrepreneurial solutions to poverty in the developing world mm -hmm. and really promote justice and, and proper understandings of charity and human flourishing. So we're doing a lot of that now and thinking about it not only in the context of, say, poverty in the developing world, in Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America, but also in the United States. And then just looking at other questions of um, what is it, what does it take to have social and human flourishing? So that's mm -hmm. a new project. Word. So a lot of reading, a lot of learning. There's so much to learn, uh, so many, in, you know, problems and 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 also so many opportunities. So this, it's been a, we're just starting it, um, but the, the website's not even launched yet. It's going to be launched pretty soon at the Center for Social Flourishing. Uh, but you can learn more at the Acton Institute and also just uh, at, at michaelmathsmiller.com or my uh, podcast, which is called The Moral Imagination. So we'll be updating people there. But it, it's um, uh, a new project we're doing. We're looking forward to it. We're lear learning a lot so far. 
Love it. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I'd love to have you back another time to maybe talk specifically about poverty too. That's that's something that's obviously near to the Lord's heart, and it's something Christians should be thinking about. So uh, that's Absolutely. really exciting. I'm thankful you're doing that work. Yeah, super excited as well. I in light of all of that, right? I talked about at the beginning how we're uh, starting in this, this new episode or this new season about human flourishing in a post-pandemic society, and so. Uh, maybe, you know, just as we think about that, right, every fabric of society was touched, you know, by the pandemic family, the way we do education, the economy. And so maybe share just from your vantage point uh, with us, how has how has your research um, and, and, and thinking showed indices? How have these things altered or attempted to alter our concept of what it means uh, to be human or what it looks like to to move about in God's world? Well, it's such a big a big question. I, Just I something I light have, to start. <laughs> I won't do that justice. I mean, for sure. Um, I mean, I think there's so many angles that we, you know, we, we can look at, we, you know, there's issues of like how, what, how the pandemic in fact, you know, of course, economics and poverty and how there's some, it was in some points there were like poverty reduction, some point in poverty increases um, lo- a lot of things going on there. I think um, you talk about that. I think just the social impact um, the impact on civil society. I, uh, you know, there were some, obviously it was a very difficult time for, for lots of people. I mean, yeah. it, people didn't have jobs. People couldn't, couldn't feed their family. They, the other thing is a lot of times there were, there were, um, people like us maybe who got to, uh, work over zoom and do different things. And then there were other people who's requ- who were required to be there and they had to be masked all the time. And it was very difficult on them. And yeah. so I think it was, it was a definite challenge. There were also some maybe a, awareness, of uh, the importance of our social nature, that we're not radical individuals. Hmm. And that sometimes, I mean, this is a big kind of a philosophical thing, but we can often take for example, for granted the, 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 com- the complexity and the embedded world in which we live and that we're embodied, embedded persons with the social nature. And the, the pandemic in, in creating some isolation and, and separateness, I think really impacted that. I think it had a, a lot. I think it was a. I think it was tough on young people, especially in a, in a different way. You know, I was thinking about this. Um, so we have seven children at various ages, mm. um, and you, you hear about like a lot of children were going through difficulty being you know being alone. So I mean, for us, it's a little bit different. There, there's so many people around here that they weren't totally lonely. But I think about you know if somebody if like if there's one or two children in there really isolated from their friends for a long time. I think that was very hard on people. Hmm. I think there was also maybe just, there's a rise in anxiety that the, the rise in anxiety is caused by lots of things. Hmm. Okay. Technology, food. I mean, there's complex, you know, reasons. I mean, yeah. there's a lot we could talk about there. Um, especially some of the impacts of technology. Um, but I also think maybe for young people, some of us who are older and active and doing things, we were busy. Um, there wasn't just the separation that took place or the change. If you think about it, if you're like 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, when the pandemic came in the beginning, there's a sense like everybody's going to die and we have to shut down. And then, you know, the politics got intense and people were following on Twitter. And so if you're an adult, you could start to maneuver through that and say, okay, here's the debate. But if you're say 10, 11, 12 years old, I think there's a there was a big pressure on people. Like there was intense fear. Like my parents are going to die, mm-hmm. my friends, are gonna die. I might die. Um, and I think then that anxiety got manifested 
you know, like in other ways. Uh, and so I think that, I think that's another, there's another big challenge. I mean, there's, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I think that, that, uh, but in one sense, the, the nature of our human fragility and also our, our embodied social nature uh, in many ways was highlighted because we, we couldn't take it for granted anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting the way I've heard somebody speak about it before. I can't remember, but who, but it was like, in some ways the pandemic not only created maybe some new phenomenon in our culture, but maybe it took some things that were already there, racial strife, political strife, uh, anxiety, pressure, dislocation, atomization, all those. And it just exacerbated it all. It put it, it sped it up or somehow it, it made these, these, um, made everything more intense. It made everything more intense. You know, what's your feeling? You know, I mean, I, I, I'm not a great historian, but when you look back on times of social upheaval, there seem to be moments where you have the initial shock and there's maybe a, uh, you know, some chaos around that, whatever, maybe some cynicism. And then perhaps people start to see it as an opportunity. Uh, maybe you can even start to become optimistic, you know. Yeah. It's just interesting. At my age, I, re- I was in college when 9-11 happened. Mm. And I remember 9-11 is another moment. Maybe I'm bringing it up. It's this other moment where it was like this really big national tragedy sort of happened. Obviously global, you could even say. And I remember in the very beginning, there was like this, we're all in it together feeling. And it took a little longer for that to wear off. It it wasn't quite as long, but it took a little longer for that to wear off. But it felt like in the pandemic, Maybe when they we did the like, hey, two weeks or whatever it was, you're going to be inside, we'll flatten the curve. People were like, okay, high five. But very quickly it devolved, Every man into, for himself. Yeah, it devolved into a sort of madness. And so I guess there's two questions. One is, are you optimistic about where we are now? And second is, was this pandemic, uh, did it do things different to society than perhaps past tragedies have? Well, again, that's another big, big question. Um, <laughs> just easy ones, about, just softballs. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe let me break, break them down into a couple of things. I, I don't, and again, push back if I'm not answering your no, questions. No, no, you're great. Yeah. But I would say, um, so there's maybe a couple of ways to think about optimism. Mm. Um, and without being overly pious, I think there's actually a framing that's better than optimism. Yeah. And, uh, and that, and that is the question is not whether we're optimistic or pessimistic. It's whether we have hope or Amen. not. That's good. And then how to think about this from a Christian perspective is, you know, hope is the confident expectation that Jesus Christ will deliver me. Amen. And that's what hope is. Mm-hmm. And so that means in very difficult times and in, and in very good times, we have to maintain hope. Mm. If we put our, if we, if we lose our focus on hope, then um, we we end up, in a sense, looking for an external solution to the problems of evil, sin, suffering, and death. So, well um, and that so now I'm I'm going back into the pandemic here. So so right. One of I think the problems that we have here that got exacerbated in the pandemic. I don't think it started in the pandemic in any way, but the pandemic manifested COVID. Right? Is that we tend to live in an it, it, we're very technocratic in the way we see the world mm-hmm. and by technocratic, we're almost like technocratic utopians. So mm-hmm. we're looking for a technical solution to the problems of evil, 
to the problems of sin, the problems of suffering, the problems of even death. Mm. So the, the writer Yuval Harari says, you know, death is a glitch. Right. Right. The transhumanist movement is we're gonna we're gonna escape death. We're gonna transcend our bodies either through uploading ourselves or through genetic and technological, you know, combination with biology to live forever. And this is in many ways the standard problem, right? Of from the beginning. So in Genesis, right, it says there's the Tower of Babel. Mm. Let's burn bricks. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Right. And so we're going to build this city to heaven. And so you see this constant desire to build the Tower of Babel, to create heaven on earth, mm -hmm. to get to heaven. And then you see this in various forms and, you know, the ancient pagan emperor empires. But in the 20th century, is you're just it's just filled with it. Mm -hmm. Right. And there, this is the 20, the modern period is even worse than the ancient period in some ways, precisely because the West had been Christianized. And so the Christianization of the West has a linear concept of time. Jesus is going to come at the end, establish the new heavens and new earth, the kingdom of God. Right. Well, a secularization of that makes that happen inside history. And so there's like great writers like Eric Vogelin and others who've talked about this in wonderful detail. But the big picture is, if you have a Christian culture and a secular mind, you're not going to wait for Jesus to create heaven on earth. We're going to create heaven on earth yeah. right here, right now. Okay. And Christians fall prey to this too. It's the church's job to do this. Right. But you see this, especially with communism, right. And you see it with the German national Socialists, the Nazis. We're going to have a thousand year Reich. If we could just get rid of all the Jews and invalids and right. We get, we just get, we're going to get rid of everybody who's bad. And we're going to create this perfect kingdom and communism. We're going to have, you know, we're going to put the kulaks in, in gulags and we're going to get, get rid of, we're going to purify the place and we're going to have clear, you know, one type of thinking Then we're going to have withering away of the state. And so we have this technocratic solution to the problems of evil, sin, suffering, and death. And um, Joseph Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict the 16th, he actually said something, I think, interesting. He said that Marxism was only really the radical uh, execution of the dominant spirit of our age, but it, it still exists even without, say, communism. Yeah. And that spirit is not simply like a political system, but it's a technocratic understanding that we can solve the problems of evil. Mm. We can solve the problems of death. And mm. so that's around all of us, right? That's that's around right, left, center, Republican, Democrat, right. Christian, non -Christian. Okay, so to be clear, like, I'm now shifting out of politics, and this is just the spirit of our age. And what I think happened is um, we saw a hyper-technocratic idea that we're going to shut everything down, we're going get, to get a vaccine, we're going to make everybody wear masks, we're going to do these things, and we're going to solve this problem no matter what, right? Mm. And there was in a sense of, oh my goodness, like, there's something that came into our world that we apparently couldn't control, right? And so I think that was really a problem. And then that, now I'm doing two things at once, I'm sorry, but that I think the other thing that happened, so you have this technocratic mindset. Well, technocratic mindset then tends to combine with an ideological way of thinking, that there's one way of thinking, my way is going to solve it. So what you also saw in the pandemic and post-pandemic Again, this was, I think you, you made a point, Adam, like all this stuff was there. It just got, yeah. it got, you know, intensified. Yeah. You already have technocracy and you already have an ideological way of thinking. And that's like, instead of saying, I'm going to look at reality and try to understand it and respond to it correctly, 
the ideology, an ideological attitude is I have a vision and I'm going to fit reality into my vision. Mm. And so this, I think, is a dominant problem. I think it applies to Christians as much as it does to non-Christians. Um, you know, think of it this way. You know, Darwin, Marx, and Freud all have their theory of everything. They're going to explain, you know, this is how the right. world works. Well, well, what's your theory of everything, mm. right? And so I'm Catholic, and I know I, I know Catholics were like, well, the Catholic Church explains it all. Like, right. no, it doesn't. Right. right, it doesn't. Right. Jesus did not give us a theory of everything. Right. It, there, he he gave us a, a way to live, the commandments, okay, etc. I'm not I'm not denying the importance, but it's not a theory of everything. Right. And so that's an ideological way of thinking. And so everybody wants their own theory of everything. And then when you saw the two combinations happen, especially from those in charge who are both ideological and technocratic, mm. you're going to do this. You're going to say this is the only way to do it. And if you don't agree, then you're bad. Mm. And then the other people said, well, if you hold this position, you're bad. So there's multiple ideologies like in a fight with, with one another. And so I think what happened is people became hyper ideological and then there was propaganda and cynicism and, and all these things. And this was very, very difficult. And so these, I think were some of the problems that came out. So how, how, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but how do I come back to optimism? Well, I'm not optimistic because I think we're hyper ideological yeah. and I think it's getting worse, <laughs> but I am hopeful because um, we, because we realize that the, we can't be redeemed by the state. We can't be redeemed by technology. We can't be redeemed by science. We can't be redeemed by the next economic plan. We can only redeem by God's love. Amen. And and so I'm I'm hopeful that maybe we'll kind of wake up out of an mm. ideological mindset and and start to have uh, more of a what you call a philosophical mindset, which is like seeking after wisdom, opening ourselves up to tradition, opening ourselves up to to the love of God. I don't know if I'm hans answering your no. Question. You 100 percent yes. are. Yeah. And I think that's okay. Well, those are the tensions I've seen, like technocracy plus ideology. Uh, and, and we've, so we've kind of lost wisdom and prudence. Yes. I want to, you definitely answered the question, maybe even more than what I thought the question could be. Um, <laughs> and I think it, it, it leads into the next thing I want to ask you about. Cause it's like in, in that framework you set up, right. That we, uh, I love you said we have this secular mind in the Christian culture. And when you blend the two together, we try to we think we have the tools in ourselves to create heaven on earth. Mm. And I'm wondering if what's also true within that, which I often feel as right, like as you say, we we are in a a lot of people are driven if we want to, you know, give society like a bone, right? Like a lot of people are driven towards like something's wrong. We need a solution, we need to fix it, or we need to figure out, you know, we're in that kind of space. And I'm often thinking like, man, we are, we're seeking after solutions, right? Par partly because of what you described with this uh, technocratic mindset and this, the secular mind. We're seeking after um, solutions in a way that don't actually solve the, the problems that we're hoping to solve. And part of that is rooted because we're not operating, operating out of, you know, the, the Christian story, right? I'm thinking specifically for um, for the for the church and like those in the church, because like you say, it's not it's not just like the the world outside of the church is doing all of the wrong work, and mm -hmm. where it's like even even the work that sometimes is being done in the church is still being done with this this other mindset that's adopted by the culture. And so, I guess if you could, because I know this is an area you've given a lot of thought, like how do we, if we want to, you know, kind of go back to first things, if you will, of 
if we want to start to answer questions about like, you know, um, some of the human plight that we're seeing, rather it be anxiety, rather it be depression, rather it be the loneliness, rather it be, you know, work, whatever the case may be, what what actually does it look like to um, have, an, have an environment where humans can flourish? Like, what is it? What does it mean to be human? How do we flourish? What do we need according to, you know, scripture, the Christian tradition, so that we even start to, because while we don't have all the tools to to fix everything, right? God has created us as co-creators, right? We get to partner with God. But in order to do that well, like we need to catch God's vision for humanity, right? And so could you just give some time maybe to kind of paint that? Like what are what are some maybe areas in which the the culture we're living in is bucking up against like, hey, these things that we're doing, that's actually like anti what it essentially means to be human. Mm. And like, what are things that we need to recapture so that we're actually giving our time and effort towards work that's supporting what human flourishing? I'm happy with that question. Not that the question is not as hard as all the other ones. So I'm not happy about that part, <laughs> but, um, but I am happy with the question. I think because it comes to um, something that I think about a lot, uh, which is, you know, we're often looking for this, as I said, a technical solution or right. like, you know, this way, this way. And now good people can disagree. Good Christians can disagree. There's no single solution to the problem of evil, right? Mm-hmm. So you just can't solve. And I think what, what we actually, where, where I think we make a lot of mistakes is we don't have the basics, right? Mm-hmm. We actually make errors on the fundamental foundational questions. And so, you know, Aristotle had this line, like a little mistake in the beginning leads to a big one in the end. Mm. Well, we have big mistakes in the beginning. And so we're oftentimes like, debating the wrong the wrong thing so i think your question's a very very good one now again it's a huge question and and i think you're part of what you're asking is what is a human person what's the nature what is, is there a nature to the human person what is a good life right mm-hmm. how do we live well i mean those so those are like the fundamental human questions mm-hmm. right so i think they're good so i would say in today's world uh, there's a couple of key things i think you, you already hit it so number one I think we have to think more clearly about what does it mean to be a human person. Mm. And so when I when I talk, when I give a talk on like the, the Christian vision of the human person, I say we need to think in three ways. We need to think, well, I guess four, but biblically, right? We need to think with scripture. What does it tell us? We need to think with the tradition. What does the tradition tell us? Our patrimony, all the church fathers and doctors you know, who've spoken through the through the ages. We need to think philosophically, and by that I mean using our reason, not just being ideological, not looking for an immediate answer. We need to think going back to our lived experience as a person. And I mean that in the sense of we're often told things about ourselves from the what this philosopher Joseph Spaman called uh, um, Robert Spaman, sorry, calls. Um, the arbiters of reality. Hmm. I think it's a good line. The arbiters of reality are telling us things about ourselves that we just know aren't true. You know, hmm. you're like, you know, love is a chemical reaction. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, can you imagine I went home to my wife, like my chemicals are attracted to your chemicals. <laughs> I mean, like, that's not going to work well. Right. And we know that doesn't mean we don't have chemical reaction because we're embodied persons. We're right. right out of the depth of the earth. Right. So, but it's not all right. And so, so I think part of it, there's a lot of confusion about what does it mean to be a human person. Mm. Uh, and, and I think this comes like, what does it mean to have reason? What does it mean to have freedom? Deep confusion over what does it mean to be embodied? Mm-hmm. Right. So 
Um, so let me say a couple of things I think we could we need to focus on. Number one, what's one of the radical distinctions between the Jewish and Christian understanding of the world and almost every other understanding of the world? And that is being is good. Mm-hmm. And matter is good. God creates the world. He declares it good. We're not made out of dragon's blood. We're not made from a demiurge. Being is good, right? That's good. Number two, our bodies are good. Matter is good. And you mentioned we're we're called to be co-creators. God creates the world and he says, complete creation, make it better, make it flourish. Mm. We're supposed to pass this, right? And so our bodies are good. Matter is good. A lot of the dominant visions of the person, what you call philosophical anthropologies, the philosophies of the person today, whether it's the person is a scourge, like deep environmentalism, right? The person is a cog, everything from communism or just kind of like, you know, Chinese capitalism or or even, you know, Western capitalism with terrible working conditions. The person's a cog in a machine, uh, the or the person like, you know, the whole way the tech, a lot of big tech sees mm-hmm. people as just, you know, uh, data pieces of data, uh, this idea of the cog, the idea um, in in transhumanism that, you know, we have to escape this miserable body of ours and and transform it by technology so that we can live forever. Um, the idea of a person as a commodity, and I could talk about all these things in more detail, but like the commodification of people, right? All of these really are philosophies of despair. They're, they're anti-theologies. They reject the goodness of being, the goodness mm. of matter, the goodness of the human person. And so a lot of the anxiety and just distress that I think people are feeling, especially young people, is that they don't think being is good and they don't think their bodies are good. Mm. And so they have to escape it. And of course, you see this with like transgender. I mean, this is gender dysphoria is a real problem where people are not understanding. They think that somehow our body's like living inside of us. And the real me is there. And like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that we're living inside of our bodies and we're kind of driving around our bodies like a car. Yeah. I mean, these are the same examples that have been used for abortion and for euthanasia. Um, but the Christian understanding is that being is good. Matter is good. Our bodies are good. Our bodies are not an accident. And we know our bodies are not an accident because guess what? We get them back at the end, the right. resurrection of the body, right? This mm. is the Jewish Christian tradition of the resurrection of the body in our flesh, we shall see God. And so, so I think this is a a big deal. I mean, we could go into all the details around it, but understanding the goodness of being, understand that matter is good, understand that the person is a subject and not an object to be manipulated or used. So a person is not just a thing, right? So I have this book here, you know, if I take this book and I threw it across the room, Okay, you'd say, well, you shouldn't throw a book across the room. But if I threw a person across the room, you'd be horrified, right? Because mm-hmm. a person is not a thing. A person is a is a someone. And and so affirming the dignity of the human person who is a subject and not an object to be manipulated or commodified. Uh, and and so the the but the dominant the world, you know, whether it's the commodifications of persons or the, you know, the all the use of persons, if you think about there's a very interesting philosopher. He's dead now. His name's uh, Del Noche is his last name, Del Noche. And um, he he talked about this commodification that it in the contemporary world, everything becomes an, an element of transaction. He called it pure bourgeois. So that the, say, the commercial society gets separated from its Christian roots and everything becomes transaction. People are transactions. Wombs, sperm, egg, right? 
trading. Everything's a trade. Everything's a, a, a commodity mm-hmm. uh, to be used. And he actually makes a very interesting point that, you know, this is can deeply connected to modesty. So immodesty is like an advertisement for the commodification of the person. And so young girls are inundated with the idea that they have to be immodest to like show their value. Young boys are inundated with the fact that girls are, you know, are, are, are tools to be used. And this harms boys and it harms girls and it causes a whole broke brokenness, but it's not simply like, I'm not just simply being like, well, you know, modern TV is bad. I mean, yes, modern TV is bad, but there's something way deeper than that. And those are deep philosophical and theological ideas. Like is our body good created by God and to be respected? Or is it just simply something to be transacted and used? Hmm. And if it is, it causes deep despair and discomfort and, and, and brokenness in the person. So these are, I think, kind of the key things we have to get right. What does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to be embodied? What does it mean to have a social nature? What is love? Hmm. Like people like, what is love? Like in the Christian tradition, well, love is to seek the good of the other, to will the other person's good. And there's something deeply profound. There's a, one of my favorite philosophers uh, named Joseph Pieper, Joseph Pieper. He um, <clears throat> says in a beautiful line that to say, I love you is to say, it is good that you are mm. to affirm your goodness. Well, people grow up without love, which means there's no one affirming the goodness of their being, their goodness of their existence, not because you are a fast runner or a great football player or a great tennis player or a great piano or because you're smart or because you're productive. No, it's just good that you are. And that's what God says Mm. to us. He says, I love you. It is good that you are. I will your good. And so the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of our social nature, the breakdown of community, the transactioning of everything really, I think, creates harm. And it combines with bad philosophy and bad theology uh, to create a recipe for sadness, for loneliness, and, and, and you know, a, a deep, I think, deep anxiety and all the other problems we're seeing. You just started at the end there, but I wanted to make the connection between what is a human and human flourishing explicit. And so you started at the end there, but maybe you could tell us um, so some some of our listeners, like me, love the philosophical side, and some might say, okay, so a human being is supposed to be like this, and it's not, so what? Or what's the big deal? Um, and I think the, the you know, retort is to say, well, if, like you said at the end, if you live in a way other than who you were created to be or how we were made or how we're supposed to be, it leads to all sorts of dysfunction, chaos, despair, horrible things uh it does not lead badness, to, the, to badness badness loneliness yes yeah. all of it and so that is the opposite of human flourishing so let me just ask you the question what's human flourishing and how is what we just talked about connected to it yeah that's a good question i mean the definition of human flourishing i i need to work on a better concise, <laughs> no, no. I, it is it's tough right so yes but i think of, of, i think you started the definition ready i mean as you already you right. started it so, so part of it it, it is we have to like when we think philosophically like what flourishing means then living well according to one's nature or essential structure mm. so what is you know these are like you know socrates and play this is right, 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 right. right what what do you call uh you know what's a 
what's a good horse? Like what, what's a flourishing horse, right? right, right. Um, do you know the farmer, Joel Salatin? He, he, he actually says like, he talks about you, all the animals need to live according to the chickenness of a chicken and the pigness of a pig. <laughs> and so he says, chickens are made to go out, wander around, pick into the ground, get the bugs, you know, et cetera. They're not made to live in on concrete floors in dark rooms and cages. That's not, that's not how chickens are made. Right. And so chicken flourishing means you're not stuck in a concrete thing. Right. And so I think there's a sim- simple question, a similar question of what does it mean to be a human being? Well, I think, first of all, in order to talk about what is a f- flourishing human, we have to talk about what kind of being a human is. Mm. I'm going to give a quick answer and then go back. Right. So I think if we say, well, a human being is a individual with a rational nature embodied a social nature right with freedom and reason then to be flourishing would mean that we're free we're living according to reason right i'm going to I'll talk about that i don't just mean like you know engineering I mean, we're living <laughs> according to reason. that we're using our freedom well and that freedom has a purpose and that freedom is for love that we're social that we're in deep friendship with and relationships with other people um male and female were created so we're called to be in relationship with a, a, a our spouse right so a man and a woman get married they have this deep friendship they have children we're called to be fathers we're called to be mothers so we have like attributes of our nature where we, we're, we're called to work and to complete creation as you talked about. So there's the kind of attributes of our nature. And when we're living according to those, you know, and, and if, and this is the thing I like, I actually, one thing I really like about the concept of social flourishing and human flourishing is that it's aspirational and, and it's also, you're never perfectly there, mm. right? Which is also part of something good because you don't want to say like, well, there's good people and bad, you know, bad people. <laughs> I mean, as Solzhenitsyn says, the good line between good and evil runs through the human heart. Mm. And so each of us is in a kind of a journey or a, or a place in flourishing. And maybe we're flourishing really well in work, but not so well in our family or really well in our family, but not yeah. so well in our work. Or so not so well in our, like our, maybe, you know, our, our personal habits, maybe we're eating too much junk and not exercising, <laughs> but we're productive at work and we're having fun with our children. Okay. So like, we're trying to like always work on this like improvement, right. Mm. So that we, we're like living well. And I don't just mean being hyperproductive. I mean, living well. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then we also have to ask the question of like human, the intellect, the human mind is directed towards the good, the true and the beautiful. Mm-hmm. So you be- having beauty in our lives is really important. Living well, the, the, the medieval theologian philosopher, Thomas Aquinas uh, said, said the intellect is divided into two parts, the speculative, right. And this is, I know very philosophical, but it's also practical. The speculative, which is what is, I want to know what is. So we want to know truth. The mind wants truth. So what's a good book? A good book is a book that is readable. <laughs> it opens. <laughs> it has, it, it, it's in the language that you understand. Right. And it has truth and wisdom. That's a good book. Mm. Right. What's a bad book? Well, it's either poorly written and it's full of, 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 untruths okay that would be a bad book right mm. so like what's a, again back to the good so so the human person we want to know what is but he said that we also have the practical intellect and that is we want to pursue good 
to avoid evil and to pursue good. So now then, and, I, and these are like, I know, I know this is long, but the, what does it mean to live a good life? It means we live according to our nature as a reasonable, free human being created in the image of God called to truth, beauty, and goodness. And to our social nature called to friendship. And so for us, the three of us are men. Part of our nature is to be a father. Mm-hmm. Right now, some people don't get married. Right. So Catholic priests don't get married, but they still have a fatherly aspect to them. Mm-hmm. Right. To be a spiritual father. Spirit. There are, you know, how many can think of the women, you know, in your church who maybe didn't have children, but they're like mothers to people. Right. Amen. So yeah. living out fatherhood, living out motherhood, living out sonship. They, these are the things that we talk about. Okay. So what does that mean? For example, so freedom, each of us is created free by God, which means we can choose to obey the commandments Mm. or disobey the commandments. God's not forcing us. He made us free. But I often say, and I think others have said this, we don't break the commandments as much as we break ourselves against the commandments. Mm. Right. Mm. Psalm 119 says, Psalm 119 says that you're like, your law is a mercy. Have mercy on me, Lord. Mm. Teach me your statutes. So the law of God is a mercy to help us live well. Okay, so we're going to hmm. use our freedom well. Well, what does that mean? Is freedom, the modern ideas of freedom is either, well, we don't have any freedom. We're just determined by our biology. Right. Okay. Now, we're made out of the dust of the earth. So our biology affects us. If you eat Fruit Loops and skim milk in the morning, you're going to have sugar rushes. You're not going to have the clarity of somebody who eats like eggs and steak. Okay. <laughs> because it, because we're embodied embedded persons. There's actually a really interesting book. I, I, I actually spent a long time interviewing him by Chris Palmer uh, called brain energy. Mm. And it's a connection between metabolic health and mental health. And mm. it, Chris's book is fantastic. Uh, and like I said, I, I, I interviewed him for four, for about two hours, but I talked spent about four hours with him and his book. I highly recommend it. Brain energy by Chris Palmer. And um, it's, if you are metabolically unhealthy, you're more likely to be mentally unhealthy mm-hmm. and vice versa. Right. right? And, and so it's not determinist. It doesn't mean that trauma or other things don't affect you. It just means those things are connected. So we are absolutely impacted by our biology and there's no doubt. All right. I, I take that very seriously. And I think all Christians should take it there seriously. I think I'm on a side here, but I think too many of us as Christians in reaction to materialism, like, you know, we're just matter. We're just determined by our biology. We become spiritualists. Right. Mm. As if, right. But that's wrong. God didn't make us angels. We're embodied, embedded persons, right? Yeah. There's three kinds of persons, right? Divine persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Angelic persons and human persons. And mm. we have bodies. Yeah. And those aren't accidents. I go back, I'm repeating that. But that's what's so, so important. So, yes, but freedom is, so. so that's one idea we're just, determined. The other idea is freedom is just do whatever you want. That's what freedom is. And I always think I often give this example, Marcus, maybe you've heard me give this example before. Like if I started banging my head on this table right here and blood started shooting out over our zoom call and you had like streaks of blood along, you would know, neither of you would think, wow, Michael, he is so free. I mean, the way he just bangs his head. I mean, (laughs) no one would think that because you'd think I was crazy. Mm. And the, it's because an irrational will is not a free will. Mm. So freedom has to be connected to reason for it to be free. And then freedom has a purpose. And that, that purpose is love. So if I use my freedom to harm other people, to enslave or abuse or steal from other people, right? Then I'm using my powers, my freedom in a way that not only harms others, 
but doesn't live according to my nature. Mm. Okay. Now you can say, well, it's natural for you to do bad things, right? Right. Depending right. on what we mean by nature. Okay? Right. So yeah, it, it's right. There's if you want to see nature, you can, you know, you can see a lot of violence. But that's but I mean by nature is that the kind of thing we are. If we live according to the kind of thing we are, then we begin to flourish. And so, um, and this is where each of us, and this is the the joy, each of us is a unique, unrepeatable person. Adam's flourishing and my flourishing, they're not going to look exactly the same Hmm. because we have different personalities, different hopes, wants, dreams, backgrounds, but there is going to be something aligned. All right. And that is living according to like, to freedom, being in deep friendship and relationship. You're not there. No one's going to flourish. Who's totally greedy, mm-hmm. envious, has no friends, never got married, <laughs> no children, has a job they hate, you know, um, abuses alcohol. Right. And um, never does anything like lives, it lives in dirt and always is listening to like the worst heavy metal music <laughs> that might be redundant, but heavy metal, I'm, I'm not a fan of heavy metal music. But anyway, if that's happening all the time, you're not like, Hey, that's your choice, bud. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's not flourishing. And yet Marcus's flourishing is also going to look different than mine, which is going to look different than Adam's. Right. So, you know, again, we, I think that it just requires prudence in this to think this through, but so it's not saying everybody's exactly the same. But it is saying that there are certain things that enable us to live well and bring joy, right? And the last thing I'll say about joy, because what we want is joy, mm. joy can't be grasped. Mm. Joy is the fruit of a love relationship. Joy comes as the fruit of living well. Mm. So those are, I think, but I think those are the things that in one sense we all know, but in another those are the inarticulate reason things that they don't get passed on in a textbook. And so as communities break down and families break down and people are more individual, a lot of this wisdom of how to live well is not passed on. And the contemporary world and its radical individualism makes it even harder to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Man, there something really beautiful happened that is just it's just the Holy Spirit, but it's like so many of the categories that you just kind of parse through of uh, things that we need to live well, kind of encapsulate, you know, just to plug the rest of the season of things that we want to have conversations about going forward, like friendship and marriage mm-hmm. and uh, how do how do I flourish at work and what does that look like? How should I be thinking through my use of technology and how do we, you know, all, all of these kinds of questions of what does it look like to be um, embodied beings and uh, to live in a society with other people and um, to pursue good. We're going to continue to have conversations about that. So if you're if you're hearing this and you're intrigued, like just stay with us. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna stay there. Um, but my I mean my next question you really already started to to answer, and uh, I'll maybe kind of just reshape it. Right, if at the end of the day, what I'm hearing, you know, as ministers, you know, we both work at a church. We're we're pastors here. Um, is just the uh, renewed and like kind of just like uh, rekindled uh, assurance that like the bringing people back to our Bibles and reminding them of what God has said to be most true about us and how we 
um, are to uh, engage with him and with those around us is so relevant because these are the these are kind of the basic questions, as you said earlier, that that we get wrong. Right. Is um, in so many ways, our culture has said joy is something that you can grasp. And so if you, you know, you buy this thing and you can get it, or if you live this way, then you can get it. If you join our side versus that side, then you'll get it. And so many people are running around, you know, trying to grasp joy by these means that don't work. And we as a church get the opportunity to stand and say, hey, joy can't be, can't be grasped that way. This is actually the way God has designed it to work and invite people into a, a way of living in a relationship with a person with Jesus and say, hey, these are actually the things that are going to get to joy as you are engaged with your neighbors this way, as you, you know, care and love your friends in this way, as you're a good father in your home, a good mm-hmm. mother in your mm-hmm. in your home, as you engage this way at work. And it's, it's all the, the culmination of all these things then brings forth the fruit Produce. of joy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just super encouraging. In light of all of that, I know there's there's a ton of things, and really the answer is, you know, te- like I say, teach the Bible. But if there were like, if there was an encouragement just based on kind of, I guess, what's hot <laughs> in culture, uh, what what are ways or, or, or conversations in particular that you feel as though like the church could do really well to like have this conversation more or have this conversation better as it pertains to human flourishing in our current climate? Mm-hmm. Golly, that's a good, good, another one to, um, to think about. I'm, uh, it'll be interesting. You're going to have me thinking about this for days. <laughs> so I'll do my best right now on the spot. <laughs> uh, let me try it this way. One is, you know, the, the gospel is the good news, the mm-hmm. evangelium, yes. good news. And part of the good news right, is the good news about the human person, that we are indeed created by a loving God for a purpose and that we are not a cog in the machine or the state. We are not a commodity to be transacted, right? Uh, There are young ladies today who are sterilizing themselves because they don't want to have children because they might hurt the climate, Mm right? Right? I mean, this is a a recipe for despair. Mm -hmm. And so Part of the good news is you are good. It is good that you are. Marriage is good. Children are good. Your body is good. Okay. I think we think really need to affirm the goodness of the body, our embodied nature, that it's not an accident. And it's understandable because, you know, St. Paul says, like, you know, woe is me and this body and everything. And like, and like the world, the flesh and the devil. And so we can kind of make, we get a little confused and think, uh, and then there's, you know, different heresies that come in that somehow like oh, any, any uh, passion or desire or feeling have something, something to be suppressed or whatever. And that's, that's not, but that's not, that's not Orthodox Christianity, right? Orthodox Christianity is that we have to align and orient our desires, our hopes, our passions to reason and truth, mm-hmm. right? In, so in, in love. So like, um, uh, John Paul II, before he was Pope, he wrote a book called Love and Responsibility, which is fantastic. It's like the 60s. Have you read it? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. Yep. yep. It's so good. Okay. And like one of the things he says that's that kind of, you know, he's provocative a little bit. You know, everybody talks about Freud and sublimation. And John Paul says, well, our desire for union has to be subordinated to desire for the 
benevolence and the good of the other, mm. right? And so we have to sublimate our desires. And what he means by that is to make them sublime, mm. make them beautiful and deep and profound. And so like, I think we have to affirm the goodness of the body and that our, and, and this in affirm the goodness of body, we have to affirm the goodness of marriage. We have to affirm the goodness of children, mm. right? Um, children are a blessing. I often say like yes. when people say, you know, a child is a gift, that's actually not a, um, you know, a sentimental statement. That's an ontological reality mm. because each child is cre- is is willed by God for his or her own sake and is in a sense given to the parents as a gift. So I have, as I said, I have seven children. I don't own the children. They don't exist for me. I have stewardship over them because they're willed for their own sake. I think that our culture doesn't provide value children enough mm. and children is ho- is connected to hope if we don't have hope we don't have children mm. and i think so affirming the goodness of the body affirming the goodness of marriage affirming the goodness of children is very important um so the good news about man you're not an accident you're mm. not a scourge right you're not you're not simply a thing to be used for pleasure or um profit of someone else yeah we have to affirm the goodness of the be- of being. I think we have to affirm and encourage friendship and families so that people can live well, because it's hard to live this way. I think we need to a- encourage the idea of, of virtue, not in a sense of like, you better be virtuous and be a good person, but virtue in the sense of like, we are given freedom so that we can use our power to do great things. And we have to, as the Bible says, die to ourselves in order to, to live for God and live for others. And we can cultivate good habits, mm-hmm. good ways of living, purity, courage, prudence, um, justice, right? We're, we can work on these things and we can, you know, go through and, and the facts are we're going to sin. And part of the good news is that Jesus came to save us. Amen. And so that Psalm uh, 50 says, and this is the famous Psalm, right? Of David after Bathsheba. I mean, create a clean heart in me, O God. There's a line where it says, God loves truth in the heart. Mm-hmm. And so I think we also have to affirm the loving forgiveness of God, that he is our father, that we go to our father with truth in our heart. We confess our sins Right? We admit them. We ask him to show us our, our hidden faults, but we go with deep trust in the Father mm-hmm. because you can't confess your sins if you think God's out to get you. Mm-hmm. You have to know he's a loving Father. He yeah. already knows what you did. <laughs> so mm-hmm. God loves truth in the heart. That's what the Psalm says. Mm-hmm. And I think we affirm that these things are all, in a sense, the goodness of being, the goodness of God, the goodness of our body, the goodness of marriage, the goodness of children, the goodness of forgiveness. And, and I think in a sense, um, the, look, there are serious problems in the world. I spend time talking about them and everything, but I think predominantly our job, I would say, is not to react to them, but to propose the alternative yeah. to the dominant secular way of living, which is the good news. And if you live according to the good news, we're still going to suffer. We're still going to make mistakes. We're still going to have sin. We're still, 
But the facts are we're in this as I kind of like that progress towards flourishing and that in that obedience to the commandments, we flourish. There's a, a line uh, to, I was talking to my son about this. It just kind of strikes me. Um, there's these two little prayers. Okay, so I admit I'm Catholic, so I'm bringing papist stuff in here. You forgive me. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll cut, you can edit out all the worship of Mary. <laughs> I'm just joking. Don't worship Mary. It's a joke. Some of the listeners, if you don't cut that, the listeners will be like, we knew it. <laughs> no, it's not true. Okay, all right. But these two, there's two, two saints that were quite quite um, lovely. One of them, uh, Francis de Sales, who who um, had this prayer, and he says, um, "I wish I could. Ha- I wish I had it in front of me the, the whole thing." So I'm going to paraphrase it. But he said, "You put your put all thoughts of fears and anxieties aside. Move forward. The same loving Father who has cared for you in the past will care for you tomorrow. Mm. Either He will give you strength to go through the suffering, or He will shield you from suffering." But either way, he's with you. Hmm. You go forward, right? And, and and put your trust in him and move forward. And John Henry Newman had another very parallel prayer, which was, look, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I have something. God has made me for a purpose. It's some definite purpose. I may not know it until the end, right? But he's made me for something. There's something I'm here to do. I might be... Things maybe go wrong, but if I just hold on and obey his commandments, right, he will be with me. He'll be with me in poverty and wealth and suffering, just like St. Paul says. And I think the message of those two things are that trust and obedience to the commandments, not obedience to the commandments because God's out to get you, but obedience to the commandments because the commandments are a mercy for us to live well. Mm. We do our best, we ask forgiveness, and we affirm the goodness of being and the goodness of the good news. I think there's, and that doesn't make us soft or compromising to the culture but our reaction is not to comp is not to react to the culture but to follow the master Amen. and i think that would be i would say the kind of the way i try to think of it for myself and for children i don't know if that's helpful answer we'll and well thank you i hope i hope what we were able to uh just to to point out just as we close is yeah you said it here at the end like god has created us for a purpose that god had um, he hasn't made accidents. He wasn't fumbling around when he made humanity. He had an idea in mind. He's given us, you see, I love it, you say like as a mercy, right? A, a picture in his word of what that ideal looks like and how we could pursue it and how we can practice it and how we can we can have the freedom to be able to walk into those things uh, through the power of the gospel and the spirit that lives within us. Uh, um, he's given us a freedom to be able to obey him. And uh, yeah, just that uh, I'm just so excited as we continue in this season to be able to explore all of those kinds of questions more in depth. Like, what does it look like to flourish uh, in our families? What does it look like to flourish in our friendships and in the way we care for our bodies and the way we see our bodies and um, the way we uh, handle our resources and the way we work? Yeah, just that we're not cogs for productivity, but we're persons created in the image of God. Uh, and so just uh, so thankful for just the all of the framework I got a page, you know, over here full of notes. And so I'm grateful for your time. And just as we close, I know you said at the beginning, some of the work you were doing, but maybe could you just give our listeners, uh, what's the best way for them to continue to follow with you? I know you mentioned you had a a podcast and we want to put those things in the show notes and stuff. So yeah, if you're listening, we'll have that below, but if you just want to let them know how they can continue to follow your work. Well, thanks for for having me and for the the good conversation and also your 
just I think I think the the way you've articulated that was Marcus was was great. You know that that we're we're not cogs. We're created in the image of God, and we're not mm. accidents. Mm. I love it. I love it. Um, so uh, I work at the Acton Institute. So that's Acton.org. Uh, again, I said we're starting this new center for social flourishing, which the website's not up. It's still in the early foundation, but uh, you can find it there at Acton, and also Poverty Cure, and then. Um, uh, you can find also my podcast, which is called The Moral Imagination, where I actually deal with a lot of these questions of what does it mean to be embodied, embedded person, neuroscience and free will, food, farming. I deal with a lot of kind of broad questions of of um, what does it mean to live a good life? And mm-hmm. um, so that's The Moral Imagination uh, podcast and also moralimagination.com or just find me by my name, Michael Matheson Miller. Uh, and uh, if you, I, I'll there's a way to subscribe. So if you want updates on the social center for social flourishing or any other thing, you can find me there. So thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to culture matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from the good podcast company. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social Check the show notes for more information on how to best connect with us as well as connect with our guests in ways to support their work. See you next time.